Hey, quick editing note. Megan Chaunce, the one and only. We have captured some less than ideal audio for the first 15 minutes or so of the conversation. Everything is corrected and everything's happy as can be around the 2230 mark. I kept this audio in the less than ideal audio because it still sets up some important context for the rest of the conversation. So hang in there. These things happen every now and then. I'm a perfectionist. I got to tell you, I'm a perfectionist with podcasting. I just am. I got to get over it, but enjoy the show. Love you. What's up, podcast fam? It is the man that makes you feel okay with yourself because you think to yourself, okay, I'm a Christian. My life's kind of whacked out a little bit, but that guy actually is a pastor of a church somewhere. I know you're thinking, I doubt the wisdom that that church has for that sort of decision, but I think he's still a pastor. And in an instant, all of your struggles with guilt and condemnation, all of your struggles with feeling bad about yourself, about your theological questions, all of that, gone. (laughs) Because of this, dumbass. I hope everybody is doing well. Hey, this last really, whatever was the last episode that was extremely vulgar, talking about disgusting things like masturbation and sex, and people back in the day when I was a teenager telling me that if I don't get control of any lust problem I have, any sort of problem with looking at porn ever, I am going to have a hard time connecting emotionally with my daughters in the future. When I have daughters, when they develop as women, I'm going to have a hard time connecting with them. It's really bad advice, really bad advice. Anyway, it reminded me of a different story. I lived with three other guys in an apartment. This is back in the college days, all right? So four guys living together. We were all moving out, okay? A fifth guy comes in. He's a fifth friend. He didn't live with us, and he's just kind of hanging out. He hears us talk about something called the wax spot. And so as we're talking about the wax spot, we all know what we're talking about with the W-A-X spot. See, just a year prior, two of those buddies that lived there, Derek and Ben, decided that they wanted to get into a homemade candle-making kick. And yes, they did. It was absolutely adorable seeing them make all these special little candles with different shapes that they could send to Grandma and all of that. Well, one time, it really sucked But they spilled wax all over the floor, and they weren't able to get the wax up, so that just became the wax spot, because it was something we talked about with whether or not we were going to get our security deposit back. Well, friend number five is not familiar with the wax spot, and he actually hears it as a W-H-A-C-K-S spot. (laughs) So, for a split second, (laughs) our Peer young adult friend thought that there was a spot in the apartment that we all shared <laughs> to, uh, shall I say, have a release. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, and we're just getting started, folks. We are just getting started. I have something I want to read from Matthew. We'll see. He is a relatively new patron. He says, Hi, Joey. I started listening to Bad Christian in either 2017 or 18. When I heard you weren't coming back to the podcast, I started checking out PWNA. Love listening to your podcast. It's one of the most inspiring things. Whoa, 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 Matthew. It's one of the most inspiring things concerning my faith and spirituality. I definitely feel the pressure to express my beliefs a certain way, depending on who I'm around. And PWNA reminds me that it's okay and actually good to have differences and good to remain open to other points of view as well. So thank you and thank you, Matthew, for beautifully articulating one of the main reasons for this show. I do appreciate it. And I want to welcome some new patrons. A lot of them personal friends, honestly. We've got Jen Rodriguez, Paul Edgar, Brock Bennett, and some new friends from Deutschland. 
Got to talking with them a little bit yesterday, texting back and forth, showing off my German. And he actually said it was still pretty good, so I remember from high school. But that those guys would be Rafael Molina Vins. And I think I said it. I think I said it right. And Ben Archer, thanks for upping your contribution. So if you want to be a patron, we would love that, or I would love that. You can check out the show notes. I'll tell you right now that basically you can get our lowest tier, which is $8, which is basically everything that you would want outside of a t-shirt and that sort of thing. But for the rest of the year, it's going to be a $5 tier. You can lock yourself in at the $5 mark, and then it will go to $8 next year. And there's exclusive content. You can help out a family in a developing country. You get to be part of community. So I have tons of material to release. I thought I'd release these two episodes. We'll release the next one in a couple of days. Two women passionate about equality amongst genders. And there's lots of overlap in their discussions, but there's a lot of unique stuff. So today we have Megan Chunks, who wrote Women Rising, has the Christian Feminine podcast. Just a quick editing note. I believe the proper pronunciation of the podcast is Faith and feminism. You're welcome, Joey. That's how rich people say the word chance. Like, don't take a chance on that. So, Megan Chance. So, here's a crazy question we ask in this episode, or she proposes. Is there a possibility that there's a connection between traditional Christian teachings on gender roles and human trafficking? Like the teachings that we have been passing down through the years on gender roles, could it be contributing to human trafficking? Like, could this sort of teaching be contributing to the problem? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a big claim. Now, in my opinion, if you don't think this is possible, some of you are like, hell yeah, it's possible. But for those of you that are like, no way, I think you'll be a little more open to these sentiments after this episode. It's a tough one. It's a tough one to listen to. But we'll call it part one of Women Are Badasses. So, Megan Chance, and next week, Sharon Miller. Peace out, people. Megan, I, I've been podcasting now, golly, it's been like seven years. I was in a podcast back in the day called Bad Christian. And so it's it's so interesting looking over your press kit because I had just looked at some suggested questions of another guest that wanted to come on the show. And it was it was actually a, a pretty cool guest, but I had to be really honest. I was like, look, and this makes me sound so arrogant. I don't mean it this way, but I was like, the questions that you sent are just, they're just not good. I, I mean, and I, I, I'm being more blunt with you, but it's just like, can people not think of better questions? I'm looking at your press kit questions, and it's like the best questions that have ever <laughs> been sent to me. I'm like, I'm just going to be married to this list of questions. Yes. Like, So whoever does that, if it's you, whoever, they're doing a hell of a job. Well, it was me. So awesome. <laughs> thank you. I'll well, take the props. compliment. <laughs> props. Yeah. Seriously, it's just like, golly, do people do this for a living? And it's like, what did you think about your season of life when such and such? Who is your biggest influencer? And I'm like, I don't want to put these questions on my podcast, you know? I'm looking over your experience. I just cannot wait to get into this stuff. So you were a missionary working with the ex exploited women. So what was the nature of your mission work where you had access to, to women along these lines? Yeah. So um, it originally started um, back in 2012. I went on a program called the World Race. Okay. And um, initially, so the program is set up where you go and serve in a different country for each yeah. month. And I um, had the opportunity. Well, I don't even know if it's the opportunity because it wasn't that my work was necessarily supposed to be with exploited women, yeah. but exploited women. Um, I guess we were kept on being in their area and they kept telling me their stories. Right. And so, um, the first time it happened, we were, our ministry was actually to, um, work, 
um, girls in Africa. If you're in a small town called Isabenia, which is on the border of yeah. Tanzania and Africa, uh, Kenya. Yeah. And um, our job there was to like give school presentations about perseverance and other things, which yeah. is in retrospect a little bit funny because a girl growing up in sub-Saharan Africa probably knows more about perseverance right. than I do. Right. Um, but that was our task for the month. And I would have girls come up to me afterwards and ask me questions about female circumcision. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And um, now can you can is is that just the the cutting of uh the clitoris? Or is that I'll go yeah, I can get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah female circumcision, uh, we wouldn't use that term in the West because it's really frowned upon, it's a really dangerous procedure. Right. Um terms that are used are either female genital mutilation or female genital cutting. Yeah. Um and that's where it can vary in extremity from the clitoris being removed or the whole external um, genitalia. Yeah. So this is not done by a professional. It's usually done by um, a villager and there isn't anesthesia. There isn't sanitation. And not only is it <laughs> extremely painful as one can imagine all of the endings um, that are just being severed, but it's also a really dangerous procedure. Girls can die to, uh, bleed to death um, on the table or on their walk home. And, um, other than and other than that, and the trauma of surviving the procedure, there's a lifetime of uh, issues that that survive, uh, that go with yeah. them. And so, but besides, like I said, the initial trauma of the experience, there's um, problems with childbirth, problem with um, normal functions like urinary tract issues, and it makes sex extremely painful. Right. There's no there's no benefits to it. Um, and so when I first heard someone ask me this question, I thought, this is a weird question, yeah. um, but I'm not. It just caught me off guard. It was like right after a question about football, American football. And so um, I didn't think much of it. I just said, no, um, we don't have it. But in fact, it's actually practiced in parts of the United States. Um, but anyways, so it was having this question asked to me. Um, I think it was the third time it was asked to me. Um, in a private setting that I felt the courage to kind of explain yep. what I knew that I had learned from, from college. And that's when I knew that this procedure was happening to them. And they confirmed um, this by saying that all of them had survived it and they were really questioning about it. And there was so much shame that right. they were feeling. Um, and so I um, couldn't believe it was happening. Don't really know what to do. Wasn't really trained and, and not knowing Gosh. how to deal with it. But I did notice that hand in hand with these stories of girls surviving FGM were these kind of really strict gender rules that idea that girls shouldn't go to school and get an education because ultimately they would be um, at right. home. Right. And so why waste an education on them? And so these, in addition to surviving these procedures, they had um, also had to fight to get an education. And in addition to that, um, it was also the first time that someone had told me they were raped. So one of the girls who had told me she had been cut also told me that she's being raped by her uncle. And this was um, very early on. I wasn't equipped. I mean, in retrospect, I had a lot um, I wish I was trained on before going yeah. into missions and I have a lot of critique for missions, but with what I had, I, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Um, and I just remember praying for them and writing blogs that this was happening because I thought maybe awareness was the first step. Um, but if I had been better equipped or had done more research, I would know that there's actually a whole movement of um, people fighting uh, female genital, female genital mutilation yeah. In Africa, and it's primarily led by women who have survived the procedure yeah. themselves. And so, um, if you do some research, and if this is something that gets you fired, there are women that you can support who are fighting it, who are locals. Um, fighting as yes. in, like, trying to keep it from happening to other women? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Trying to stop the tradition. Yeah. So, we asked my pastor, the guy, the contact that we are working with, like, why is this happening? Yeah. He said it's just a very strong patriarchal tradition, and traditions are hard to change. And if you look at, I mean, here in the United States, of course, we have similar tradition, not 
female genital mutilation, but we have patriarchal traditions that are hard to change. And we can get into that in a little bit more, but, um, so what I'm sorry for interrupting, but I I do want to make sure I get, so is, is the purpose of the practice to make sure sex is only for reproduction, not for pleasure for the Um, woman? I mean, I don't fully understand, yeah, yeah. but it's it's a it's essentially a way to control women's sexuality, okay. um, which is common in a patriarchal culture. You're going to see, um, example, here in the United States, you might see purity culture a lot more emphasized on a woman staying pure as opposed to a man. Yeah. So because sex is now extremely painful, it's kind of a way to control a woman's sexuality. Yeah. And she'll apparently sleep with less men if it's extremely painful to do so. So it's like I, I hear of what you're talking and, and I'm I'm thinking... Gosh, are, we're, are we talking about hundreds of thousands of women, millions, millions. like currently? Yeah, millions. Currently. That golly, that just that really makes my heart sink. And then, honestly, my knee jerk reaction, or I don't know if that's the right saying, but I'm like, wow, women have it awesome in America. Now, with without mm-hmm. hearing what you just shared, I obviously don't think that. Mm-hmm. Like, I obviously know that there's inequality and. Uh, bad teachings and all that mm-hmm. stuff but but when i hear that i'm like oh wow yeah. women are treated like queens in america mm-hmm. and and i i think what i want to ask you is i i want to hear more about the which i think is a huge premise of your book the connection of how we teach through the church mm-hmm. patriarchal i can never say that word <laughs> that well yeah but basically the tie-in with with our beliefs that are traditionally Christian beliefs, the mm-hmm. complementarianism and all of that, how it mirrors mm-hmm. the beliefs that these cultures that do that hold. And I get that, but can I mean, can we at least say the implications of those beliefs are different now? And I'll, I'll kind of explain where I'm coming mm-hmm. from. So I told you grew up in the South mm-hmm. Bible belt and I have definitely observe complementary relationships. And I don't agree with that philosophy. Mm -hmm. My wife and I don't operate that way. But I truly, I would bet tons of money that the woman was truly happy, felt completely honored and respected by her husband, Mm -hmm. and it worked for them. And they both would hate human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So obviously, obviously there's exceptions Mm -hmm. And different implications, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you just asked me a lot of questions. Yeah, I did. I did. I do that a lot, Megan. Sorry about that. I will will try. one. (laughs) I will try and get to there. Um, But so what I'll do is I'll continue telling my story and then tie it into the um, patriarchal teachings we have in the church. And then I'll try and answer your last bit of the question. Are there exceptions to the rule? And I usually do this when I'm like super interested in what we're talking yeah. about. So that's at least a plus, Good. but it's not an exciting interest. It's like, a, oh, this is killing me, mm-hmm. but it's, it's stuff that people need to hear. Yeah. So yes. So continue. yeah. So, um, after hearing these stories of the women and Isabella, Kenya, uh, I unfortunately encountered women the next month in Tanzania that were also experience, experiencing extreme violence from the men in their lives. Yep. I had seen enough women's oppression, girls' oppression up to that point that I decided that I was going to, I had to do something about it. I just couldn't even like sleep at night. Um, and so I continued after meeting her, like just dedicated myself to trying to understand what was happening. Why is there so much violence against women? And I started to also notice, um, that the stories that happened to me, like I am a survivor of sexual assault, the way I was taught sexual assault happened was a result of individual sin. And most often in purity, I was told it was my fault. I must have been wearing something wrong. I must have been with a wrong man. Something that wasn't my fault. Um, and that's what we teach. Boys will be boys. Um, girls need to cover up from head to toe lest a man be tempted to lust or act on that lust. And... Um, Forever, I thought. I don't want to believe that, but I know yeah. you're right. Well, I mean, I, I, right. I was sexually assaulted when I was 13 by a stranger. Uh, a few days previous, I had been told to change my shirt because it showed a small sliver of my stomach uh, when I rose my hands. And so I believed it was my fault because I was yeah. told a few days previous that my body made men do bad things or would make men do bad things. And so when a man did do a bad thing, it was my fault. And I didn't tell anyone for a decade. 
And so while doing this work, of course, I was thinking of my own upbringing, but I didn't know any women. I, or I knew very few women, if I was brave enough to ask a question, who weren't a survivor of sexual assault or at the very least sexual harassment. And so I started yeah. asking the question, why? Why is it that women, no matter where I've gone, you know, the culture changes, the food changes, the clothing changes, but one thing never changed. And that was that women were treated less than men, seen as sexual objects. And so I had to understand why this was happening so to prevent it. I spent about five months working with sex trafficked women in Southeast Asia. And um, while I was there, uh, there was an American guy. So in the Philippines, I'll have to set up because sex traffic will look different depending on the area. But in, in the Philippines, um, also this this area um, uh, was started as like a sex trafficking hub because it used to be a, an American army base. So we also have to reconcile that. Oftentimes, there is this idea in the army of comfort women, and so they're exploiting women. And so um, the area we were in used to be a former army base, and that's how it turned into, like, a sex trafficking hub. Um, but it was basically as bars. Women would dance on stage um, and get lasers pointed at them if men were interested, and then they would be theirs for yeah. the night. And um, it was really... It was really obvious that most of the women didn't want to be there. They were trying to get their body. If they if they had a laser pointed on, they would push others into the light, um, which I think is a huge indication of uh, the coercion that's happening here. Um, a lot of people ask with sex trafficking, well, is it choice? No one's chaining them there. Why are they there? Um, well, <laughs> this is because of due to a, an enormous lack of options. And so something that we're seeing specifically yeah. in this area is with climate change, there's a bunch of these massive storms coming, massive typhoons that are just wiping out provinces. And so a family that used to live off their land with, you know, these massive families, 10, 12 members, um, have their whole livelihood washed away overnight. And so they'll send their yeah. children to the city to try and get money so they can survive. And yeah, so they 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 go to the city to try and get money, but oftentimes due to the fact that they grew up in these more rural areas, they don't have an education, right. and that's how they end up getting trafficked into this. And they oftentimes, the story I heard a lot was um, they thought they were going to be a waitress or something, and they didn't know the full extent of it, and it was too late by the time it um, they were there. And I heard that story over and over and over and over again. Um, uh, but anyway, so it was there. I was had just finished talking to this woman and this American guy calls my group over and he's like this, I don't know, a man, maybe in his sixties. And he was there with a younger guy um, who was very strong, like very, like a bodybuilder type. Yeah. And um, he asked us why we we're there. And we told him we're here and um, we're, we're partnering with an organization that helps these girls get a college education if they desire and, and get to safety. Yeah. Um, because a lot of these women are survivors of, enormous violence. I had someone I worked with be murdered by a client. So this is an extremely dangerous um, trade. And right. there's so much violence that happens right. towards these women. And so we told him why we were there. And so we turned the question back on him. And he said that he was there because women here were raised right. And they gave him the respect he deserved. Yeah. And he went on this very long monologue that I had heard variations of growing up, essentially that women didn't know their place, that they needed to be submissive to the men in their lives. And um, as he was talking, I'm like, why does this sound so familiar? Like, why? And then it hit me that he sounded like my pastors growing up and that he, you know, I was about to get married and I was given the book, like love and respect um, wow. this idea that men must have respect, which is so interesting because I've even had a conversation about the word respect because when I when oftentimes in my upbringing, when I heard a man, a white man use that word, it meant shut up, sit down, submit to me, respect me. But if I hear a minority say it or a woman often means don't objectify me. So it's even interesting yeah, the way the word I've never thought of that. Yeah. 
It, I mean, because it means different things depending on who's saying it. But in, in my context, respect meant shut up, sit down. And so this man going on and on sounded like my pastors. And after five years, I had been doing um, working with women um, in, in some capacity for five years now. I just had this moment of realization. I had been kept on asking the question, how do we fight the demand? How do we stop this? And it hit me that the patriarchal uh, teachings that I had grown up with in the church were complicit because I don't know this man's story. He didn't say he went to church um, and I'm not going to assume that he did, but I do know for a fact that a lot of men who have bought trafficked women do go to church. And sometimes these stories blow up in national news and we see it. And and so um, this idea that women must submit and men must get the respect they deserve is absolutely promoting enormous power differentials. Um, And it's, it's researched and shown by many studies that sexual assault is actually due to power differentials. Um, There's a a psychoanalyst, her name is Lynn Yonak, and she says far and away, sexual abuse and sexual assault is due to uh, the perpetrator's need for dominance and control. And um, the fact that those being perpetrated against don't have as much agency to say no to those. And so when I think about it, this whole gender role theology that I grew up was being told was biblical is actually contributing to enormous power differentials, which contributes to sexual assault and sexual abuse. And um, there's not any studies about like what causes sex trafficking or what causes the demand. Um, But based on that anecdotal evidence, I would say sex trafficking is also due in large part for uh, perpetrators need for dominance and control especially because the conversations I've had with Johns and I've had several, oftentimes it's men trying to get control or they feel insecure or they're trying to be viewed as masculine. And our, um, and our listeners, some of our listeners may not know what Johns was because I didn't know it. Okay. I've never heard that terminology before. I learned mm-hmm. it from you and in, in reading some yeah. of your stuff. So I guess I'm not that woke. So yeah. <laughs> Johns, Johns is essentially a term used men who buy trafficked women. Gotcha. Um, so that's the the term that they use. It's called Johns. Gotcha. So it's not like I talked to a bunch of Johns. That's just the terminology that they right. use. Um, but anyways, so to answer your question, can you be in a complementarian marriage as a woman and feel happy? Absolutely. Right. I absolutely believe you can. Does the system as a whole need reform? Absolutely. Because it creates enormous power differentials. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't specific instances where it's fine. But I have a podcast called Faith and Feminism. I just wrote a book um, about this. And I'd say I hear constantly, constantly from women who grew up in this context or were married to a man in this context and said it was abusive. And I didn't have the words to understand why it was abusive. And there's other educators out there. One of them is Natalie Hoffman. And she specifically talks about this in terms of marriage and how, um, you, like the woman might not be physically beaten, but because right. of these power differentials, she's being, she's not allowed to like spend her own money or she's right. not allowed to leave the home or she's, there's just so much control that the spouse has over her, which is a form of abuse. And so for me, realizing that I had been raised in a system that was complicit in the harm against women and with their best intentions to help trafficked women. Like, I'm not saying their intentions were to harm women. I don't think that's the case at all. Right. But they're sending all of this money to fight human trafficking without realizing when they're saying from the pews that women must shut up, sit down and submit and saying that men have to be dominant and controlled. They're actually feeding into these scripts that drives the oppression of women. And so um, realizing my complicity in that system was painful. And I think when we realized that we've been part of a system that was harmful. And then also not only did it harm women that I saw, it, it harmed me. Right. I have so many stories of, of, of the harm it caused me. Yeah. And so um, I decided I wouldn't be complicit anymore. Yeah. I didn't feel like that's what Jesus wanted me to do. And so I, you know, quit my job and started talking about it. And yeah. I've been pushed to the fringes of Christian community, but I also believe there's nothing more Christ like I can do right. than stand up for those on the margins or point out the harm 
that we might unintentionally cause others with our theology. And so um, that's why I wrote the book. It'll be in the show notes, obviously, but for those listening right now, it's Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice Mm -hmm. that Megan wrote. And it came out in May, I think. May 11th, yes. May 11th. So do you think, and I'm suspicious, I think that you and I probably see the Bible similarly, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Wouldn't you admit that the Bible is patriarchal? I think the backdrop of the Bible is patriarchal. It is not the point of the Bible. So I think people have read the Bible as a prescription instead of a description. And I think from my study of scripture and my understanding of scripture, the women we see mentioned in the Bible, they're not mentioned because they were super submissive and quiet. They're mentioned because they pushed past their gender patriarchal gender norms to do what God had called called them to do. And I have so many different stories um, about that from the old Testament to the new Testament. Sure. Um, But for me, the point of the Bible is certainly not patriarchy. The point of the Bible is liberation. The point of the Bible is, you know, Jesus Christ's gospel and bringing those in from the margin and liberation and love. And um, I, I I don't think I, I don't think you can read the whole Bible and be like, I think Jesus cares most about submissive housewives. Right. I just, right. And I, and I agree with mm-hmm. you. I think where I'm getting at though, is I am, I am with you as far as uh, against how things have been set up. But mm-hmm. I would also say, and this is, this is from a fellow Christian. I'm mm-hmm. a pastor. Mm-hmm. It, it, I think it's because of scriptures that we read. I, I would I'm okay at this point with saying, you know, in, in my faith with saying, man, I love the Apostle Paul. I get a lot out of him. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's spirit inspired. And I think there were times when he was wrong. I believe that at least America as a country, we, the problem that you're identifying, it's here because of things that we read in the Bible. Like it was almost like an irresponsible response to the Bible. So I agree with you as far as that's not that's not the intent mm-hmm. of the Bible, but I could clearly see how we messed up. Yeah, I would say more so I wouldn't blame it on the Bible. I would blame it on yeah. who was teaching the Bible and the interpretation. Because let me give you, there's so many examples yeah. that, okay, if we're taking this, you know, scripture. For example, um, I think it's in second Timothy. There's several different mentions where it's like women submit to your husbands. So there's one of them and I get them confused. It's either second Timothy or Ephesians five or something like that. And it says starts with submit to one another, right? Yeah. Well, there's that one, but there's a different one that says wives submit to your husbands. And right after that, it says slaves submit to your master, right? It's the next line. Yeah. Okay. So if you're saying that wives must submit to their husbands, shouldn't slaves also submit to their masters? Shouldn't there be slavery? I mean, obviously we know as Christians that slavery is wrong and, and it's, it's toxic and it's bad. Yet you are, you are choosing to focus on this one verse with completely ignoring the second verse. It's not plain and simple. And another example of this, it says, well, let, and let, let me respond yeah. to that real quick. If you don't mind, like I, I, I agree. I think that is, that's another example of, of a problem. I do feel like Paul had pro and, and, and I don't expect you to, mm-hmm. to agree necessarily, but I believe that Paul had in his culture. And I don't think Paul's a bad guy mm-hmm. by any means, but I do think he had an unhealthy perspective of slavery as well, that Americans in the 19th century, we read that and we justified, I mean, pastors went home after preaching a sermon to their slaves. And if mm-hmm. one of them stepped out of line, I bet you he got, he got them punished. Mm-hmm. So that, I guess that's what I'm saying is I think that some of the stuff that we found ourselves in, it was because we were reading the Bible in the wrong way. And that was taking everything as like inerrant, inspired by God, where I don't think slaves submit to your masters is necessarily inspired by God. Yeah. I think I, I mean, I would agree with that. I also think there's, I've been doing it obviously because of the work I've done. I've done a lot of study into Paul and specifically those specific instances. And like I said, I get them mixed up, but I had an expert on my podcast come. She's a biblical scholar that kind of um, went more into that, but I yeah. still wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say the problem again is necessarily Paul. I think the problem is that we have been taught to value certain scriptures above 
other scriptures. Yeah. I think we've been taught that the Bible is a prescription instead of a description. And I yeah. also think that we can clearly see that certain verses are being held to higher um, standards. So for example, something I hear a lot in my work is when I talk that women, these power differentials are, are harmful. Yeah. Um, I often hear, well, the Bible is very clear. And I'm just like, my goodness, <laughs> have you read the Bible? Because it's not right. super clear. But if you're saying in this right. one instance that women should be submit or not teach or whatever, and, and that's very clear to you. Well, then it's very clear to me that when the rich young ruler went to Jesus and Jesus said, give away everything you have to the poor, um, right. it's very clear to me that you're not following scripture because you're not giving everything away. And then like, no, 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 that was that one guy at that one time in this one right. situation. And I'm like, clearly you understand context then, because if right. you didn't, you would know that not everything that's said in the Bible is for all of us, but it might be to a specific person at a specific time. And so yeah. that is something that really frustrates me because you are picking and choosing when we use context to protect your own power. Right. And um, anyways, I it's so funny because people think because I'm a feminist that I can't be a Christian. And I'm like, I have been a Christian since I was- People still believe that? I didn't know. (laughs) Yes. I was like, I forever, my whole life. Oh, man. I have read the Bible cover to cover probably more times than you have. And if you want to have a Bible battle, friend, we will have a Bible battle. Not that I think it's fruitful or necessary, but I think that's something that really frustrates me is they assume- because I've landed in a different spot than them, that I don't know my Bible. Yeah. And I also think something that's really important that I have learned from the, the faith of civil rights activists, because something I never understood is the people who are the biggest proponents of slavery were Christians and the biggest anti or the abolitionists, the biggest abolitionists also used their faith as Christianity yep. to fight against it. And then we also see this in the Jim Crow era the biggest segregationists use the Bible to justify why people should be separate. And also the biggest civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. had the Bible. And so what we need to look at is a historical context of the Bible being used for a very long time to protect power for political gain. And, And we also see the Bible being the inspiration for those fighting against those political powers that harm others. And so we have to understand, and I think that's the question we need to ask ourselves, am I part of the camp that's using the Bible to protect political power? Or am I part of the camp who sees that this political power is harming others? Yeah. And I'm going to use my understanding of Jesus and scripture to fight against systems that exploit. And I think this is another thing that we, when I look at, um, you know, it says in the Bible, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. To me, I'm like, oh, powers and principalities, patriarchy, white supremacy, racism. Mm -hmm. These are all powers and principalities. It's not one individual person, right? Like my- It's not all demons. It's not all demons. (laughs) I think it's literally, if you look at Jesus and what he was so angry with a lot of the time, it was Pharisees who used their their religion to appear holy by while neglecting things that mattered, like mercy and justice. How many times does Jesus rebuke the Pharisees who give a tenth of their savings and have their prayers and whatever? Right. But he says, you've neglected the more important matters. And and I just I think that's a real question we need to ask ourselves as Christians. Are we part of the traditional church that has used religion as a weapon to appear holy? Or to be yep. politically powerful, um, like the Pharisees? Are we part of a faith that sees those systems for what they are and actively works to make a better world? Because yep. I think that's the Jesus that we want to follow. So when you started to to acquire these convictions and quit your job, and what did it look like initially when you started to speak out in your religious context in your church? And have you been able to remain in that context with your views? Like, I have no idea where you were you in like a Southern Baptist mm-hmm. church and you started talking about this stuff. They're like, this yeah. woman's crazy. She's a Jezebel. <laughs> I mean, how, what did that look like? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think you can imagine how it yeah. went. Um, 
I wouldn't, I mean, the organization, when I quit my job, I don't think my organization was like overtly patriarchal. I just don't feel like I could say what I felt like I needed to say and still remain employed there. Like, I feel like I'd be, this might like, you know, there's people all the time who are like journalists or something. They say like, my opinions might not represent uh, my, the whole organization as a whole. And I just knew from past experience when I had spoken up that I had gotten in a lot of trouble. And so I was, I could only imagine uh, what I was about to step into um, by saying these things. And so I, I quit my job. I don't think um, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't like the worst environment ever. It had work to do, but I don't think it was the worst. But when I started to speak out, how'd you do that? Like talking to pastors, talking to elders, like I, well, I did have conversations with the organization Um, that I worked with over like before I quit my job. Um, uh, and were you working at a church? Is that I was at for a missions okay. organization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, so I could like I would confront sexism, yeah. and they would like eventually agree yeah. with me that this was wrong. But then they would be mad at me for speaking up. If that makes sense, they're like, "Okay, we agree with you in your biblical explanation, Seth, but you shouldn't have done it because you spoke out of offense or something like yeah. that." And so, um. I had been at the organization and I had spoken up and I did get things changed, but I also felt like I was being pushed to the edge for doing so and that I was being viewed as a problem for doing so. You were inconvenient for sure. Yes. And so, I mean, and then I also just wanted to say what I wanted to say. So I quit my job and that's when I started um, my podcast. And it took me a while because I was like, I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) I really just wanted to write my book, but I couldn't get a book deal without building a platform and yada, yada, yada. So I started um, my, my podcast and it's interesting. I, so we just hit 200,000 downloads today, um, which is exciting. Um, But (laughs) when I first opened the day one, I had like the first three reviews I had were one star and I don't know who they were. I, I, I have guesses. Screw those people. Um, <laughs> yeah, because so I know my family was against me, uh, uh, specifically my in-laws, yeah. and we. I, I I think it was them, but I don't know right. that, so I can't say that. Um, but we had a lot of conflict specifically with my in-laws because they. It was so. This is what I think I found so interesting yeah. about this whole process is I've never ever renounced my faith in Jesus. I've never said God isn't real. Like I like according to their idea of what gets someone into heaven and what you need to be as a Christian, according to them and their words, they would say, believe in Jesus. That is, should be the only requirement. What I found though, is that's not their only requirement because I have been pushed to the margins for not fitting the other requirements, other unspoken requirements. You must vote conservative. Um, You must submit to your husband if you're a woman. Um, you must like be pro-life. You might like the list goes on and on and on, right? All of these things we say is just believe in Jesus, but it's so clear that that's not the case because when someone might just step out, they might have voted for a Democrat. They might've voted for Biden or Hillary. Okay. Well now they're not a Christian anymore. So I think they also, we really need to examine what Jesus they're believing in it. Cause again, I think it's revealing a political social construct more than it's revealing of Jesus. And so when I got married, um, my in-laws basically told me that I needed to put obey my husband and my vows, and I was not going to do that. Um, what, what was what was their business anyway? Uh, moving on, you don't have to answer I that. Mean, they, <laughs> um, I mean, he they didn't say directly. Yeah. They told me a story twice about how obey was in their yeah, vows, yeah. and that's just the Christian right. way. So it wasn't. I mean. They didn't say you must put this right. in your vows. It was like the Christian way is to put obey yep, in yep. your vows. Um, so it was through when they found out, I think where things really started to devolve is the things I was posting was offensive to them. And uh they would often go instead of they would comp well, they would comment on my stuff, but then they would go to my husband and kind of like rein your right. wife in, you know. Um, and so things devolved really badly there. We tried to reconcile it eventually i mean this was several years ago eventually had to cancel flights home for the holidays and stuff um so it did not go well we're at a better place with them now but only through not being able to talk about any topics and 
of depth, yeah. right? We have to keep it very um, surface level. Right. Um, was it an adjustment for your husband? Did did he start to change oh, yeah. as you started changing, or did he already change? Like, how did that? He was already. Cha- I want to have married. Yeah, him. yeah. <laughs> if he was like submit right. to me, absolutely not. Um, actually, in fact, the night I met him was at a wedding. Yeah. I gave him a a, fam- a feminist manifesto of sorts because I was done with Christian. I had been in pseudo relationships for when men found out I didn't think submitting was biblical right. or right, they would be like, uh, okay, you're not Christian enough yeah. for me. And I'm like, okay, well, bye. I'm not <laughs> anyways. So when I met him, I'm like, I'm not beating around the bush, I'm not wasting any time here. I'm just going to tell you who I am and you can take it or leave right. it. And he loved it. Um, but um, he, so for him, it was an adjustment and not in that our beliefs, his beliefs were changing. It was that he had never been vocal yeah. about his beliefs. Yeah. And that's when his parents realized that he had changed from his upbringing. And so that was also really hard because he had it in his mind. He had such a good childhood um, and, and a loving childhood. And for him, it felt like his parents changed. And for his parents, it felt like he changed. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was just a really not good situation and it's getting better because my husband and I individually see therapists to talk about family dynamics. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's not, I'm not going to lie and say it's like all better, but it's, it's better than it was. (laughs) So, um, and then also I had friends who told me that I had one friend who told me she couldn't support me anymore because she couldn't be tied to the liberal agenda. Oh, wow. Um, which was really painful. Yeah. And she sent me that message on my birthday. Oh, my gosh. Um, Happy birthday, Megan. Yeah, I know. It was We're so not bad, friends anymore so- because of your <laughs> beliefs and opinions. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the, it was so bad. I mean, this was after we had just canceled flights home to go uh, visit our family and we canceled those flights. And then like I was at Starbucks on my birthday, trying to like, just connect with God. And then I got that message from my friend and just ended up sobbing. Yeah. And I went to my car crying and I couldn't see cause I was crying so hard. Yeah. I couldn't drive home. And this woman knocked on my window and she motioned for me to get out of the car. And I was like, what is happening? I don't know this lady. Yeah. And it's not all over me. And um, couldn't find like a tissue. And she just like, is urgently like, come on, get out right. of the car. And so eventually I get out of the car and she just pulls me into a hug. And she said, I'm not going to let you leave until you know how loved you are. And she was just praying Jesus's name over me. No, I had no idea who she was. And it was like, she was speaking through God. That's and cool. I remember, yeah. So my friend that day, both my, my in-laws and my friend all rejected me in the name of the Christian God. But that day I felt like God sent uh, a woman that with God on, I don't know. I I don't even know who she was who held me as I cried. And that was when I remembered that God is closer than my skin and that God is with me in this work. And um, I will never for as long as I live, forget that because I think that was probably my lowest point. Like it felt like my work was costing me too much. I was losing my family. I was losing my friends. I didn't have a faith community that I really belonged to. I was kind of gossiped about. I knew at my old organization, people were gossiping about me. Um, yet God sent this woman yeah. to to pray the things I hadn't told anyone right. over me. And uh, I just knew that God was yeah. with me and God is with me in this work. And so I'm not going to stop talking yeah. about it because I, I believe this is God's work. Yeah. It's isn't it cra- It's because of my I'm a yeah. Christian. You isn't know? it crazy how people will? I'll just use the word cancel you, like your family mm-hmm. and your friends, on the basis of you seeing the Bible differently. When if you mm-hmm. really read the Bible and Jesus's words and his approach, it it what it didn't have much to do with beliefs other than believing in him, and then the rest of it was <laughs> yeah. loving your neighbor. Yep. I mean the yes. good, the the Samaritan yes. for crying out loud was was mm-hmm. called a good man you know in in that yeah. call, uh, that's just uh. all right so 
the last four questions, I'm totally sticking to your script. And I also understand if you're running out on time. So just touch on them Mm -hmm. as much as you want to. But purity culture connected to rape culture. And this is something Mm -hmm. the the purity or the anti-purity culture movement is something that I'm still very, very new in. I think I would probably jive with it, but I just haven't read a whole lot. But yeah, tell us how those two are connected. Yeah. So I think growing up, if you're a man or a woman in purity culture, your experience is going to be vastly different. And I'm not going to say that for everyone um, because I haven't been part of every church, but I know in my church, it was vastly different for me growing up as a girl. Yeah. I, I believe that. Yeah. And that's super harmful. We, I think the difference well, I, I can't, again, I can't speak to it for, for, for me as a woman, a girl growing up in purity culture, I was taught that my very being, my very body was shameful, something that needed to be covered, something that when I started going through puberty, something that needed to be hidden. Um, and so, I mean, if you went to the pool as a kid, like all the girls would have to be covered from like neck to like me wearing their clothes and the boys could wear whatever they want in conjunction with this was phrases like, um, if it's not on the market, don't show it. Okay. So is my body a market that if it's not covered, you can touch it. My face is showing. Does that mean it's okay to grab my face? But these are the kind of teachings I grew up with it. On top of that, I was told my sexuality was not my own, but my husband, my future husband's. And so an example of this is when I was 12, I was, we had to write a letter as 12 as year olds pledging our purity to our future husband. And the way we wrote the letter, I hadn't read it. Like I actually did remain pure for lack of a better term until I got married. Um, but I remember deconstructing a lot of that, but gave it to my husband as a, not as a joke, but like, oh, look what I got. Like, here's the wax seal. And the letter was so, he read it and he's like, this is one of the saddest things I've ever read because this whole letter is basically presenting yourself as a gift and an object to me to be owned and dominated by me. And so these were the kind of teachings I grew up with. And so the question is, how is this connected to rape culture. So addition, in addition to this, a lot of the teachings we got were we were likened to objects. For example, girls were like a normal Oreo until they did something sexual and they were a licked Oreo, or it was like a normal lollipop, an unwrapped lollipop, or you were a licked lollipop. If you did And you were taught sexual. this, the, those analogies. Um, the, a lot of my friends were, I was actually taught I was a flower. I was a flower, and each time I did something sexual, I would lose a oh, petal. Oh, my gosh. And so... What um, was the dude? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that wasn't taught. We're not... Com- uh, they didn't get that. When I was... When I was in um, when I was in college, gosh, it was a very long time ago. So probably like twenty three, twenty four years ago, there was a guy, and he was a mutual friend of of another friend. And I mean, that, talk about a challenge to to really love someone despite this. But he literally sat in our living room, and I, I was so young, I really didn't have the the skills or maybe even the nerve to like say, "What the hell are you talking about, dude?" But he literally was going through a list of women who he had slept with and basically from the context of, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's easy. She's a slut. And then I slept with so-and-so and I was like, what, what does this say about you? Like, why, why are they the dirty ones? I mean, it's just like, Oh, just, it killed me. It killed oh me. yeah. Well, I couldn't talk about that because that's part of the masculinity script that we get here in the United States. So there's men who research this. Um, one of them is named Joe Ehrman and he says there's three masculinity myths. Um, one is the idea that you need to be like physically tough and strong right. and muscular. The second is that you need to be very financially um, wealthy. And the third is that you need to have um, a lot of sex with different women because another right. notch in your belt. And so it's part of our masculinity scripts um, in a lot of patriarchal cultures that the more you sleep with women and um, control their sexuality, the bigger man you are. Um, but that's actually studied and researched um, in the United Gosh. States. So, yeah. Um, yeah, his name's Joe Ehrman, if you want to look more into it. He's a former and off football player. Yeah, So gotcha, gotcha. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I have friends who had the lollipop and the, the Oreos. I specifically had the flower yeah. um, analogy. So basically, if you did something sexual, you'd be a bald flower and then all of your worth is gone. Because what do you do with a bald flower? It's useless. It's dead. It's whatever. Um, and so what I want to show in these analogies is number one, that you're literally likening little girls to objects. They are not people now, they are objects and most often objects to be consumed or in the case of a flower, an object to be viewed on as beautiful, but will lose as its beauty. Um, so it just even in the idea that we're presenting, girls are not human, they're objects. And when you look at um, rape culture and even in like the media we have, oftentimes it's due to being objectified. Um, women... <laughs> Our body parts. Women are there for your sexual pleasure. Um, it's connected. And, and I think what I really want to nail home is I, I shared the story earlier about how I needed to cover up lest I um or lest, lest I make a man yep. lust. Um, and I was told if something happened, it would be my fault. And so the not only is that a very damaging thing to teach a young girl, it teaches her, it's her responsibility to prevent men's actions. But when you're growing up and, and men are in the same room as you, or boys are in the same room, they're getting the message. If she's not covering up, you're not responsible for your actions. Yeah. And we see, I mean, that's, I mean, what is it teaching young boys? Yeah. I mean, honestly, what message are they supposed to take from that? If you're saying cover up, be covered from head to toe, or it's your her right. fault if you stumble, right. it's not taking any responsibility for your own actions. Right. And it's it's really, and we can see this. I mean, this is not just in the church. This is in the world as a, at large. If we look at statistics, one in three women in the United States is the survivor of assault. Between one in five and one in six is the survivor, survivor of rape. And if we look at who is actually convicted for rape, only five in 1,000 rapists face jail time. And so we need to even look at the sheer amount of women. So I remember when the Me Too movement happened, we saw so much backlash from the conservative Christian church that now my son is in danger. Dang it. Yeah. Like women are saying, I have been living a life where I am sexually assaulted and objectified regularly. Right. And the, and the church's response is to say, now my son is in danger. Right. No, your son is the one doing this right. stuff. Like we need to have a conversation about it. And so again, we need to ask the question, where are men getting the ideas that they're not in charge of their urges or their, or their thoughts? Well, right. church has taught them right. that. And also, if you, like I said, if you look at our justice system, we don't treat rape seriously. Right. It's a slap on the hand. So even when someone is convicted, so for example, the case of Chanel Miller, Chanel Miller was a college student who was raped publicly. There was witnesses to this. He, she was completely passed out drunk. A boy, Brock Turner, dragged her outside and, and raped her. And there was witnesses to this. And even with witnesses, she was drugged through the, the ringer because the fact that she was drunk made it her fault. But the reason he wasn't responsible was because he was also drunk. And so what's a convicting or damning to her is an excuse for men. So that's another reason um, that we see that. And then we're looking at his future. We're saying, well, he's going to be a superstar swimmer. So he shouldn't like, we're going to ruin his future. We can't Aww. ruin his future, which is the backlash that we saw specifically from conservative Christians. Yeah. Like you're going to ruin my son's future. Um, but we don't talk about the the trauma that it is for a woman to survive. Itself. What about her future? What about her therapy? What about the fact that she's not going to feel safe around men for a long time that she's going to be looking over her corner that she doesn't know uh like just the trauma of living through yeah. that is something that you live for the rest of your life but again we're featuring they focus on his future and so there's so many examples even in our justice system where we're so focused on the man's future and and even with two witnesses pulling this guy off of her he only spent three months in jail. And that's like the best case scenario. So I think we need to ask ourselves questions. Why do we live in a society where this is so common? And I think we need to look at our teachings. Yeah. What teachings 
show if, 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 if rape and sexual assault is due to power differentials? In what way are we teaching our little boys to be dominant and control and take what they want yeah. and teaching our girls to be silent and to serve men? I mean, this is absolutely contributing to it. And I also think it's, it's extraordinary whenever a survivor speaks up. I People keep on attacking survivors. They're saying, oh, it t- like, took her 10 years or it took her 20 years or however long. But do you know the consequences that comes when a a woman comes forward about what's happened to her? We can see, I mean, with Dr. Ford, we saw that she had to live in a safe house. Uh, People were like threatening her life. And and it's it's just really upsetting to me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that women aren't believed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, I don't feel like I was, and I, and I do agree with you. It's, it's Mm -hmm. massive. The problem, I don't, I don't see myself as reacting to the teachings and seeing women as property and all of that. In fact, I would theorize that the reason why I objectified and still do sometimes objectify Mm -hmm. women is because I was taught my whole life that the sexual urges in themselves are just bad so that just like that means i just have to shut everything out and so everything is just so sexualized it's just it's Mm -hmm. it's just right and that's that's not a healthy teaching at all no oh man it's not it's as those are natural urges and i think we as a church need to do a much better job so like i'm obviously only speaking to my experience as a a girl growing up in absolutely scenario but i've heard from so many men including my husband that urges that are completely and also women have sexual urges which is i think is something that needs to be said but their sexual urges are demonized. And there's actually a really excellent resource. I'm going to mention it because I just had her on my podcast, but um, I actually have the book right here, but it's called Shameless Parenting by Dr. uh, Tina Shermer Sellers. And she's studied this for like decades. And so here's a little tidbit of information. So the way we do sex education (laughs) is so bad in the United States. In fact, we don't even (laughs) really talk about it. There's a lot of fear-based like... I remember my experience was like looking at slides of STDs, but I didn't really have any idea if even how the female body worked or anything at all, actually at all, really. Um, But in other countries, specifically Nordic countries, they start sex education from kindergarten. And when I say sex education, it's not like learning about genitals. It's learning about consent, what feels normal, what's not. And so if you look even at statistic, like statistically, those nations are going to have a lot less sexual violence because they're teaching children from a young age to know their body and to not have shame about that. And so when you lump all of the shame on young boys for having natural sexual urges, they're having hormones course through their body. Of course, they're going to be horny. Like that's a normal thing. But people shame it. And so they're shamed. And so they're forced to deal with these things in secret. And I think that drives them to pornography because how else mm-hmm. am I supposed to get this released? Or how else am I supposed to learn about this? Because no one will talk to me about it. But yeah. at the same time, my lived experience is my body is like going to explode right. at any second. Right. And so I think that's another thing that we need to talk about is learning how to have these conversations on sex. Okay, you have a sexual urge. That's normal. Right. Like this is normal for your age. What do we do with that? Right. How do we deal with that urge in a way that is honoring to you and to the, and to anyone else. Yeah. And so I just, I think we need to really reform that. And luckily there is a resource. There so, you go. There you go. <laughs> um, I have been going through this book. So, so as a, good. as a father of two boys, one's 11 and one's nine, mm-hmm. do you think I'm on the right track in that? I want to filter everything through respect women, respect women, respect women. They're not objects. They're your mm-hmm. equals. And and what yeah. I and what I mean by that is I don't want to say anything along the lines of don't you ever masturbate, don't you ever yeah. have sexual thoughts, but always filter everything through those are yeah that's the book right there <laughs> yeah it says it has pages it has section 10 yeah. is ages 12 through 15 cool. I'm gonna um, have to get that i don't book. you're gonna have to get the book because yeah. i don't know but what i would say is yes what really frustrates me is a lot of times the idea of respecting women has been given conditionally yeah. we respect women who dress right. right we respect women who follow the rules right. I want to make it clear that respect women is not, is not given. Right. It's not a gift. It's not a gift that someone gets for good behavior. It's, it's, it's a necessity because someone is made in the image of God. And I, and I feel, I do have compassion for 
young boys, because not only from church are you getting these these harmful messages that women are less, but if you even look at our, our culture as a whole, you run like a girl, don't be a girl, don't be a sissy. We hear these things. Yep. Put your big boy pants on. Yeah. yeah. And that they're not allowed to express emotion. And we could talk all of the ways that patriarchy also harms men, but we don't have time for that today because it is, it's, it doesn't yep. benefit anyone. Um, but I think also in society, we tell our little girls that it's okay to have superheroes that are male or look up to males. But we never tell our sons that it's okay to look up to females. Yeah. And I think it's so important that we change that oh, idea gosh, because yeah. it's it's teaching who is, who is worthy of my respect or who can I learn from. Yeah. And um, so I, I think I would love it if sons looked up to like Captain Marvel yeah. as much as they looked up to like Batman. Yeah. And um, because I think that is also a huge part. It's like, it's not emasculating to look up to women. Right. Women are awesome. Yeah. And something interesting in our society, we've always heard the phrase, women mature faster than boys. So cut boys a break. <laughs> what it should be said is women and girls mature faster than boys look up to them right. as a role model. Right. And you'll get a kick out of this. So when my son saw the first Wonder Man, Wonder Woman uh, movie, he leaves the yeah. theater, he looks at his mom and he's like, mom, Wonder Woman is my favorite superhero of yes. all time. <laughs> that makes me so happy. She's my favorite too. I love Wonder Woman. <laughs> Hey, I have a, a a policy though with women guests. Can I get a written consent from your husband? <laughs> Funny. Sadly, that would probably happen in another, you know, if I come on a different podcast. Are you I was alone with a man on my No, I haven't no that oh, was, No, I, I can see gosh. that happening. I talked to a man on loan online for an hour. <laughs> And the video you are was in on. trouble. We hey, we needed the we needed the podcast video Billy Graham rule. There needed to be someone else present. Yeah. <laughs> yes.